All right, go ahead, open your Bibles up. We're gonna be in Colossians, and that's in the New Testament, Colossians chapter one. And uh, before I dig in, Joe, thanks for being here today. Joe's uh, wrapping up a sabbatical. He's had a, a few weeks break over this, this summer, and this is his last day, and he wanted to come visit us, and I put him to work, and so I'm sorry about that. Joe and I go way back when I was uh, working corporate, uh, corporate job, and uh, it was Joe who actually called me into the ministry. Uh, it, it, he knew I was studying in seminary, and I wasn't quite sure what I'd be doing with my future. I didn't know if I'd stay in business my whole life, or you know, I had this desire to teach, but I'm not sure what to do with it, what space that would be in, and and Joe tapped me on the shoulder one day after a long night in prayer, and he, he had said, Rafe, I think it's time you quit your job and come on staff with Park as a pastor. And, uh, and that was about 11 years ago that conversation took place. About six months for me to quit my job and come on staff. Took some time. Uh, Joe did our wedding uh, 12 years ago, and uh, just a dear, a dear friend. Uh, Joe, I want to give you one more compliment. One thing I love about getting to work with Joe is I get to work alongside a handful of men who genuinely know and love the Lord and love rich theology where we dig into the word of God and don't just think about God rightly, but, but live God's truth. And Joe's one of those men in my life, and so I'm really grateful for him. So thank you for being here, Joe. All right, Colossians chapter one. One of my favorite things to do is uh, on Saturday mornings, you know, in my house, uh, I'm not much of a cook. My wife is the wonderful cook, and she cooks 20 of the 21 meals a week in our house. But on Saturday mornings, oftentimes, I'll prepare a meal for the kids. And uh, my skills are limited, so it's usually pancakes or French toast, and those are pretty simple. Um, but one of the things that's very sweet on a Saturday morning is, you know, you, you, you get out the pancake mix, or you get out the eggs, whatever, whatever your ingredients are to start making the pancakes. And one at a time, the girls will come over. I've got three daughters. And one at a time, they'll come over and be like, can I help? And I'll say, and in my brain, what I'm thinking is, oh, that's going to be a mess. But then I'm saying, of course, of course I want you to help. And then as soon as one knows they can help, then the other two, can I help? Sure, take an egg. And then you see him kind of cracking in his, it just, the egg goes everywhere and the, the powder spills everywhere. Now, and I love this. It, it makes 10 times more a mess, but I love that they get to handle the ingredients. They get to kind of work the, the batter and get it to work. My oldest is just now at the point where she's asking if she can do the pouring onto the griddle and the flipping. That's a dangerous thing. She could burn herself and half, you know, maybe not half the time, but some of the time the pancake gets flipped over to the side of the griddle, so then the dough is falling down onto the rest of the stovetop, but it's a joy. Now, why do I love doing that with my kids? Because I love my kids, and I love, I don't need them to make the pancakes. I'm more than competent to make the pancakes on my own, and frankly, probably to make them a little better and easier and cleaner, but I invite them into the process with me. And in so doing, I'm doing something with them. They're learning to love me. My love for them is, is changing. It's growing as I experience this with them. They're experiencing all kinds of new things. Now one of them is being entrusted with a griddle, a hot, a hot griddle. And, and they're seeing their dad entrust them with something that actually is quite dangerous. You know, in many ways, this is a little bit like what prayer is like. In prayer, God entrusts us with the very tools that move the arc of history and move the arc of people's lives. God doesn't need us to do anything. God's sovereign. He's providential over all things throughout history. Uh, he, he, he does not need our limited human hands to accomplish anything on this earth. He could just dictate just like he spoke the world into being. God spoke and it was. And he could do that right now in all circumstances. And yet, by some divine mystery that we don't quite understand, he's invited us into the process 
prayer is this very dangerous thing. You know, many of us, when we talk to somebody who's going through something in life, we'll say, oh, we'll pray for you. And then we go on with our day and we forget that we ever said we'll pray for you. And frankly, oftentimes we don't even mean that we're gonna pray for them. It's just something we say because we've been around the church long enough. We know we're supposed to say, I'll pray for you. Not only do we not ever pray for them, but I wonder if in our minds we really fathom what we just suggested. Let me put it a different way. We're gonna go before the throne of God, the God who sustains the entire universe, who has all authority and control over all things, and we're gonna plead with him to hear your case and change circumstances in your favor. Now, now if you said, I'm gonna pray for you, if, you, if that went through your mind every time, I wanna ask you, how would that change your prayer life? Would it deepen your prayer life? Would you approach prayer with a bit more of a reverence and with a fervency and with a zeal, knowing that what you're doing is something remarkable? God's granted you access to something very dangerous. Today, we're kicking off a a two-week series that I've titled A Rooted Community. And it's this idea that a community needs to have roots that go deep. If we're gonna be a community that's not just playing church, but actually is a church, doing the things that God's entrusted us to and having the power that God has assigned the church to have, then we need to have deep roots. We need to go very deep with this thing. And uh, we just wrapped up a whole summer series looking at Old Testament stories and how to apply them faithfully in our life. As Joe shared in a few weeks, we're getting into the book of Luke. And I've got two weeks here to think about what does this community need to be about? It's one thing to study the Bible together. It's another thing to come to church. It's another thing to be the church And so there's two topics I wanna linger in for two weeks, very simple, easy topics, but I think topics that have more depth than we oftentimes give them. Today, we're gonna look at how do we pray for one another? How does a biblically rooted church pray for one another? And then the next week, what we're gonna look at is how do we care for one another? Across the life of this church, there's all types of hardships taking place. That's no, no doubt. In your own life, I know that many of you have hardships that you're going through. Those who are intimately involved with the inner workings of the church know that in the last six months, there's some some heavy, heavy work that we're laboring through as a church, caring for one another, being in each other's lives. The reality of living in a sin-filled world is that every single one of us are gonna have those kind of hardships that kind of bring you to your knees, that uh, you know, as much as we want life to go smooth, in some ways, sin impacts all of us, and many of you are in that season now. And so the question of how do we pray for each other is answering the question, how as a community do we beseech God to enter into that space in order to see God move in someone's life effectively? We all need that. We all need that individually and we need that collectively. So today we're gonna look at Colossians 1, this prayer that the apostle Paul prayed to the church at Colossae. And uh, I'm gonna try to pull out three, three ways that deeply rooted churches pray for one another. Three ways that deeply rooted churches pray for each other. Let me read you the text, Colossians 1, 9 to 12. Paul says this, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
This is a prayer that Paul prayed. Three ways that we ought to pray for each other. What I'm gonna try to do is look at the way Paul prayed and then say, what can we draw out from that? If we're gonna learn to pray for each other, how do we model ourselves after what Paul does? The first way we pray is this. Churches that are deeply rooted will pray that each person might know how to apply God's word with wisdom in their life. Number one, that we might know how to apply God's word with wisdom in our life. Look at verse nine. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, that might sound like kind of bible language, but let's break it down. First of all, what's he saying? So from the day we heard, heard what? Well, he's referencing what he just had said a few verses before, and what he said in the previous verses was, we've heard how well things are going for you, that you're flourishing, your souls are flourishing. Jesus is doing remarkable work in your life. He's doing remarkable work in your community. It's interesting. Normally, when you get a good report of somebody, you you check in with somebody, you hear things are going well, you don't then put them on your prayer list right? Usually the people that make your prayer list are those that are having really hard seasons, and your list grows with all. For Paul, the moment he heard that they were having a a wonderful season, he commits them to prayer. He writes them down on his prayer list, and he says, I'm going to pray ceaselessly for you. I'm going to keep lifting you up in prayer. This is important for us. We don't only pray for those who have hardships, but we need to continue to pray for one another. Why? Well, one, we don't want people to get stalled where they're at. We want them to keep growing. We want the church to keep flourishing, but two, Oftentimes, the good seasons of life, they linger for a moment and then we hit some kind of trial. And God does that intentionally. That's a promise from scripture, right? And so the seasons are good, the seasons are good, and then we hit a trial. And what happens sometimes is in the good seasons, we, we kind of can take our eyes off of God. Things are going well. It feels like we don't need him as much. And then a trial hits and all of a sudden we're floundering. And the reason we're floundering is because we've had our eyes off of God. And now God's gonna bring us back to have our eyes on him through the trial. But Paul, as a faithful friend, as a faithful pastor, says, it's good right now, so I'm gonna pray for you so you don't take your eyes off God. He says specifically that they'd have, be filled with the knowledge of God's will. First of all, notice this. That's written in the passive language. Be filled, be filled. He doesn't say that you will fill yourself. He says that you will be filled. And the importance for us out of that little note is that all the work of growing in Christ, all the work of becoming someone who truly knows God, who truly walks with God, who doesn't just pace this thing on and says, I go to church, but someone who knows and loves God, that is a supernatural work of God. None of us can muster the strength to do that on our own. Even if you live a disciplined life, those disciplines put you in a place where God can then change you from the inside out. And so Paul, even in his prayers, he's praying, God, I'm asking for a supernatural work to take place in these people's lives. He goes on, he says, that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, what is wisdom? I think a lot of people have an idea of wisdom that it has nothing to do with what wisdom is. A lot of people think if you somewhat have your life organized, you somewhat have your life in order, you are someone who is wise. You might even be someone who many people in your life have come to for counsel, for advice. You're someone who's dependable to be leaned on. They know that you'll listen to them and you'll give advice in one direction or another. You might be that person and yet not have wisdom. In fact, I've met a number of people like that over the years. Wisdom is the ability to look at the word of God and to see all of life in light of how God has defined reality and then to be able to apply it as if this were true. 
Wisdom is not just anybody who has advice to give. Over the years, I've, it's interesting, over the years I've, I've known a number of folks who have seen counselors or therapists, and I, I, counselors and therapists have a wonderful place in the, in the Christian life, Christian counselors do, to care for people. But I've seen therapists and counselors give some of the worst advice I've ever heard. And I see people then taking actions based on advice that has nothing to do with the scriptures, is completely worldly, and frankly is gonna sow seeds of devastation in their life. Just because you give advice doesn't mean you have wisdom. To be wise is to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So what is the Apostle Paul praying for them here? Well, interestingly, notice, he's not even lifting up very specific circumstances, is he? He's not saying, God, would you, you, know, would you, would you work in Jenny's life and, and, and fix that one situation with her mother-in-law? And, and Jenny is not a, I just made Jenny up, so if I'm pointing to a Jenny over here, I apologize, okay? He's not... All those are good. Those are called simple prayers. We, need, we, we should never lose those with God. God loves when we come to him like a child and just lift our real needs up. But notice in this prayer, Paul doesn't pray for anything specific in terms of tangible needs in that moment. He's asking they be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom understanding. Now, how does that happen? The way that happens is that we know God's word. He's praying, God, would they be the kind of people that live by this book? that they would know it, that they'd study it, that they'd read it, and that they then know how to apply it in whatever circumstance they come across in their life. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19 says, the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written he catches the wise in their craftiness. There is a way to be wise in the eyes of the world that is foolishness in the eyes of God. And for a Christian, we have to be hungry for the wisdom of God. It's not enough to just say, I've come to church. It's not enough to say, I've joined a small group. A Christian is someone who's been so changed by God, they want to see the world through the lens of God. This summer, our men went through a wonderful men's study together. We had 50, 60 guys going through this together while the women were going through their own study. And in one of the sessions, the, right towards the, I think it was our very last session, actually, the author was describing, he said, he has a lot of people come up to us and say, how do I know what the Holy Spirit wants me to do? He says, people come up with all kinds of questions in their life to me as a pastor, and, and they're always asking, I don't know what direction to go. What, what's the Holy Spirit asking me to do? And he had this great line. He said this, how do we discern the voice of the Spirit? He will sound like everything you hear Jesus say in the Gospels. The Spirit wants us to know the mind of Christ. The Spirit of God loves the Word of God. If you want to hear the Spirit's voice, soak your mind with the words he inspired you wanna be a person who's led by the Spirit of God? You wanna be a person who knows God's will, who, who walks in the Spirit in all wisdom and knowledge? You have to know this book. Now, this goes two ways. First of all, before we can pray this into someone else's life, I wanna ask you as followers of Christ, is that you? You might be a Christian, but you actually might be a very immature Christian or an infant in your faith if you're only just now filling your mind with the Word of God in order to see the world correctly. The history of the world and the way reality works is very different from what the world tells us it is. It's how God's defined it. And now I ask us as a, as a church family, is this how we pray for each other? Think about the last time you, you were brought into something difficult in someone's life in this church. And, and you, you had the thought in your mind, I'm gonna pray for you. Was the way you were praying for them, if you really did pray for them, was it something like this, God, I don't know what direction they should go. I don't know exactly, but God, I pray that they would be filled with your word, 
that they would go to your word, that they would see truth from in here, and Holy Spirit, that you would use your Bible to give them a vision of what they're going through so they would stand confidently on how you would lead them. Is that how you pray for people? That's how Paul prayed. Number one, pray that they might know how to apply God's word with wisdom in their life. Number two, and this one will linger in for quite a while, pray that their lifestyle, important word there, Pray that their lifestyle would increasingly reflect the overflow of the gospel. Pray that their lifestyle would increasingly reflect the overflow of the gospel in their life. Colossians 1, 10 to 11. He goes on, he says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy. Now notice how I use the word lifestyle. Where do I get that from? Well, right there in verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy. This is an ongoing way. It's so that the, all of your life, wherever you go, the way you're practicing your life, the vision of your life, the rhythms of your life, the habits of your life, the thoughts of your life, the actions, the dialogue, everything about your life, your walk, your lifestyle, would be godly. And it would be a reflection of the gospel. Paul wants the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, what he's done on the cross, and what he's accomplished through his resurrection, not just to be something they know here, but something that is so sunk deep down into their hearts, and is so then flowing out of their fingertips and their feet, that wherever they go, the gospel's having, having powerful ways of, around them. The gospel's making its mark wherever they walk, wherever they move, wherever they speak to. In these few verses, I count eight ideas that are lifestyle ideas of how the gospel should overflow in your life. Eight ideas. But I'm gonna look at it again in two ways. One is this is how we ought to pray for others. But before we can pray for someone else this way, we have to be those that experience the overflow of the gospel in our life. You know, it's one thing, imagine someone who's, who never spends any time in the word, doesn't care for the word. They just don't, they, you know. Maybe they come around church, but the Bible means nothing to them. Do you think they're gonna pray a prayer meaningfully that God's gonna really move on if they start praying, God, would you give them a, a powerful understanding of the word of God that they would believe it, that they'd apply it with all wisdom? Wouldn't that just be hypocritical of that person if they never, knew, if they never spent any time themselves? God might in his mercy respond to that prayer, but I'm telling you, it's a different life when you yourself are praying something you practice and believe. And so as I go through these eight lifestyles, these eight values of a lifestyle that's an overflow of the gospel, I'm gonna ask you to use it as a test for yourself. First and foremost, is your lifestyle overflowing with the gospel? Are the seeds of what Paul says should be true of you, Christian, overflowing? And then I'm gonna ask us, is this how we're praying for each other? Number one, first thing we see of the eight lifestyles, that you would be worthy of the gospel, that you would live worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to live worthy of the Lord? Well, you have to know what, who the Lord is and what he's done for you. Think about this for a second, Christian. You know the basics of the gospel. I shouldn't have to repeat every single little detail of this, but let's just go through it. The gospel is that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to take your place underneath the wrath of God on a crucifix. Keep this in mind. 
God so looked down and saw your plight that you were filled with sin in your motivations, in your heart, and in your actions and the mistakes you've made, and there was a consequence for all of that sin, and that consequence was separation from God. You did not know God, you would never know God, and you'd be in hell for eternity. That's God. Now, we can reject that, but that's what people who don't know God do. They reject that because God said it with clarity in his word, and there's no excuse for not knowing that. God is a just judge, and seeing our plight... He sent his son to go underneath the wrath of God on our behalf, literally being crucified, the most painful version of torture humans have ever invented. Jesus died on the cross in our place. He rose from the dead, defeating sin, Satan, and death. He's filled you, Christian, with the power of the Holy Spirit to lead you in all truth and understanding and knowledge and wisdom. He secured your eternity for all future. Now, how do you live a life worthy of that? Is your life worthy of that? Is the rhythms of your life, the thoughts of your life, the the desires of your life to to, to just honor God and what he's done in your life, is that that a posture you have? Does, Does living a life worthy of the gospel drive you when you wake up in the morning? And is that how you pray for others? The second thing we see, You see, he's worthy of the gospel. But then second, he says that you would live a pleasing life, that you would live a pleasing life. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, what's a pleasing life? Well, we just studied this when we studied the Ten Commandments. To please God is to obey God. Just as my little children, I love them, I've given them good rules, my rules give them life. When they break my rules, they put themselves in danger. If they run across the street, They put themselves in danger. The rule to not run across the street is not to bind their freedom of what they could do. It's because I love them as a dad. God's rules give life. And we please the Lord when we live an obedient life to what he's decided is true and what he's decided is right. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Do you long to obey God's commands? Again, I'm I'm talking about living a life worthy of the gospel. If God's who he has claimed to be and if Jesus has accomplished what he has claimed to accomplish, is your life reflecting that by pleasing God in your obedience to him? And then when you find an inconsistency in your life, you find something in your thought life or in your actions or in your attitudes or the way you're a, a husband or a wife and the way, is when you find that, you quickly bring it to God and repent and say, Jesus, thank you for taking my place in the cross. I get this wrong, I need your grace. Does that, is that on your heart and mind? Number three, a fruit-bearing life. A fruit-bearing life. The third thing he mentions is that you might bear fruit. Now what is fruit? In, in the Christian life, fruit is when the, gospel, the, the kingdom of God is flowing through your life and changing you to make you more Christ-like and then impacting other people around you to bring the fragrant aroma of Christ to everyone around you so that your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends, everybody, they're getting a taste of Jesus when they're around you. And it's good, and it's salty, and it's compelling. And they're scratching their head going... <sighs> I don't have that, but I want it because you're in their life. You're a fruit-bearing life. And so I ask you again, is your life bearing fruit? These things kind of build on each other, don't they? Because here's what happens. You begin living a life worthy of the gospel, then that's very pleasing to God, and, and he begins to bear fruit in your life. 
You gotta get these things in order. You gotta understand the gospel. You gotta believe the gospel. And then this begins to flow through you, making a, a fruit-bearing life. Number four, an increasingly knowledgeable life. He says, increasing in the knowledge of God, end of verse 10. What does that mean? Well, again, if you understand the gospel and you understand what God's accomplished in your life, you ought to make it your great ambition in life to know everything you can know about God this side of heaven. The word of God cannot just be something that the preacher on a Sunday you know, quotes some verses from. If it really is as good as I've just said, and as, as you claim you believe, this has to be the anchor that you're building all of your life from. We scour this to know God's will and God's word and what he's communicated to us. To grow in the knowledge of God's word. To see all of life in light of it. Number four, he prays for a, a powerful life. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power. Or this is the fifth one, a, a powerful life. Strengthened with all power. A memory verse of mine over the last three weeks has been Hosea 14, verses four and five. Verse five says this, I will be like the dew to Israel. They will blossom like the lily. They'll take root like the cedars of Lebanon. Now, metaphorical language, but consider what that means. God's looking down on Israel, that's, and now true Israel, the church of God, and he's saying, I'll be like the dew. Just think on that, that, that crisp morning when the, the grass is just soaked in wetness. And he says, they'll blossom like the lily. Fruit will come out of their life. They'll, because I'm just smothered over them, fruit's gonna come in their life, and they'll take root like the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon was famous for their cedars. In fact, King David, when he was buying all the materials for his son Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem, where'd he get the trees from? He got them from Lebanon. Because the cedars were so strong, their roots went deep underground. They were these great big trees. They didn't sway, they didn't fall, they didn't crack. The Christian life is one of power. God gave you the Holy Spirit when you believed in Jesus. He filled you to know God's will, to have your motivations and desires changed, and to be strong in the Lord. Not strong in your own strength, not strong because you've overcome some stuff in life, not strong because you got your act together, not strong because of anything else, then you know God. And that's a pretty good guy to have in your corner. You're leaning on him. You're trusting in him. And you, there's a power in your life. You'll take root like the trees of Lebanon. Are you easily swayed? Do you easily fall apart? And is that what you're praying into other people's lives? God, would they not be easily swayed? Would they be like a, a cedar of Lebanon that's just rooted and anchored in the word of God and whatever comes their way, it might be really hard, but would it not topple them because they're strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit? Teaching us how to pray for one another, remember that. Number six, that they might live an enduring life for all endurance and patience with joy. This week I was talking with Joe on the phone catching up and uh, we were chatting about a handful of folks we used to know who at one point were small group leaders in the church and had since veered tremendously. Wherever they are, they're just not plugged into the church. And, and we don't know where their salvation is, but we know that things don't look good. I have a lot of people, my wife and I oftentimes say, friends we had in college, who when I was in college, I was a brand new baby Christian, and I looked up to these guys thinking, oh, I would never be as, you know, I could never know the stuff they know from the Bible. That's crazy. Many of them, I, I I don't know if they're walking with the Lord at all anymore. So what does Paul say? He says, pray for endurance in their life. 
Pray that the fervor they have for Jesus now will last in 10, 20, 30, 40 years until Christ takes them home. Philippians chapter one, verse six, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Pray that into their life, that Jesus would give them an endurance that lasts, that they would not grow weary, they would not grow faint-hearted. Hebrews chapter 12, verses three says, consider him who endured such hostility against himself that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. What's he saying? Look to Christ and gain your endurance to get over everything you're going through in life from Christ. Number seven, a patient life. A patient life. Two little sweet ones he adds here at the very end of this. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. What is a patient life? When you know how patient God has been with you, it makes you a very patient person with other people. When you know how patient God has been with you and what you actually deserve before a holy judge because of your actions, thoughts, motivations, and ways you've treated yourself, God, and others, and you know how long-suffering he's been with you, and you know what he's put up with you, and yet he's still hunting you, he's still pursuing you, when you know how patient he's been, do you know what happens to you? you? You see other people in their brokenness and you don't look down your nose at them. You don't just, you don't write them off you don't judge other people right away as just like, I, I don't have time. I don't have time for that silliness. Because if God did that with any of us, we would be in hell right now. He had unbelievable patience with us. He granted us mercy when we didn't deserve mercy. And then the patience is, God, this is now fostering a, a, a Christ-likeness in me where I'm patient with all things. I'm patient in my hardships, because I know that I'm not alone, I know that God's with me, I know that whatever happens, even if it's death, even if that is what happens through all of this, I know where I go, it's secured, it's, it's, it's official, Christ has me. And I'm very patient with others, right? Patience means other people are being difficult in your life. <laughs> if you're having patience with someone, it's because they're being difficult, but Christians are unbelievably patient. And number eight, a joy-filled life. A joy-filled life. Someone who knows the gospel has a joy about them that cannot be squashed. Someone that knows the gospel has a, this is a sweet day because the Lord has made it and it can't be taken from them. You can do whatever you want. You can, you can, you can beat them up. You can arrest them. You can throw them in jail. And you know what happened to Paul when you threw him in jail? He was in the deepest, darkest cellar of a Philippian jail. And what was he doing in the middle of the night? Feet tied in stocks in a torture position, singing hymns to God. <laughs> so that the other people in the jail were wondering what got into the guy in the back. See, when you know this gospel, that Christ went to the cross for you, you, you can't not have a joy in you. Now, this is what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there aren't hardships in life. Of course not. But look, what does Paul say in James chapter one? Consider it pure joy when you experience trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here's what's, what a trial is. All hardship, if you're a Christian, God sovereignly sees your life. He orchestrates every moment that's gonna happen. And even in the hardships, he says, I'm forming you. I'm forming something in you that is needed to make you more Christ-like through this. And even in the pain of it, the Christian sitting on the gospel says, there's a joy in me. You can't take it. You can't rob me of that. I'm with Christ. Eight lifestyles of the Christian. Christian, is that describing you? 
Now, what I'm looking for here, when I ask that question, there's all ranges of spiritual maturity in this place. In order to have any of these, you first have to believe the gospel. Until you've actually accepted Jesus Christ as your true Lord and Savior, not as a mystical figure in the wind, not as a spiritual guru to take some advice from, as your Lord, as the one that you commit your life to, none of this can be yours. You can have a painted on worldly version of it that's shallow, but if you want the real thing, you gotta go through the cross. Have you actually believed the gospel? Have you repented of sin, trusted in Christ, what he's accomplished on the cross, and are you experiencing this? Is your lifestyle marked by an endurance and a patience and a joy? I'll tell you what, sometimes mine isn't. Sometimes I have very little patience. And I catch myself. And I think, I'm a pastor. What am I doing writing these people off? And, and then what do we do? We, we go back to the cross. We go back over and over. We say, thank you for being so merciful and patient with me, God. A man am I a work in progress. Thank you for the gospel. But Christian, you gotta have a seed of these things in you. This should be growing over time. And then we pour this into people's lives in prayer. We just look at this church. Look at this church. This is a, this is, God's, God is doing so many amazing things in this church right now. I can't, every week I have to just keep repeating some of these things because my wife and I, I just say it over and over. My wife and I, we, we'll, we'll be up late at night just ch- catching up on the day and we'll be saying, we are being outserved at every, every place we turn. People are loving on this church like we've never seen before. This is new. This is fresh. We had 33 people, I think it was, praying this morning. That's new. This is something good. This is a movement of the spirit. Now, things are good. Things are going good. What do we do? Now is the time. We, we pray these things into the life of the church, and we pray that the lifestyle of the people in this church, that they'd experience it and grow in it together as a community. Are you committed to that? That's what Paul was praying. Number three, we pray that they might walk in all circumstances with a spirit of thankfulness. I love this one. You know, the, the wonderful thing about Christianity is that this is not rocket science. This is not rocket science. You don't have to you know, go to seminary and become a monk and live in some mountain somewhere and study you know, hidden books to figure out how do you live as a faithful Christian. The, the simplest person can figure this out. Ready? You pray thankfulness into people's lives. That's not very hard. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's work through that. He has qualified us. What does that mean? He's qual- now, that's good biblical language. He's qualified. Well, we know what that word means in other spaces. You go to get a, a car loan. Someone qualifies you for a car loan. It means you meet the prerequisites to get the car loan. You want to run a marathon? Somebody just ran the triathlon. You want to run Boston? You got to qualify for Boston, right? You gotta, it means you meet the prerequisites. It means you're able to run 26 miles at a certain pace faster than I can, okay? You're, you're qualified for it. You meet the prerequisites for it. Paul is saying here, He's saying God has qualified you for what? For the inheritance of the saints. God's done something in your life so that you now meet the prerequisites so that you can have the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, before I explain this, I want you to imagine for a second. Imagine a royal prince. Go back in time. Let's think cartoon movie princes, okay? And there's a good prince He's, he's the son of a very good king in a very good kingdom. Everybody knows this is like Camelot. It's a wonderful kingdom. And this young man, he's come of age and he's looking for a bride. And there's two different women. 
There's one over here who happened to be raised in royalty. She's a princess of another kingdom. She was raised in luxury. She was raised in royalty. She's raised around a good king herself. Now, if that prince married that princess, she'd be grateful. She'd be happy. She'd be excited. And it would be a wonderful day for her. But now imagine for a second that that same prince found a young woman who was raised in absolute poverty lost her parents when she was young, had worked tirelessly all her life. She was just didn't know what it was like to be comforted. Many nights she had spent in tears over the hardships of her life. And that prince found her one day and said, I want to marry you. Which of the two women would have a greater love of their, of, of their, of their husband? The, the one who was saved from much, Right? The one who knew her situation and knew the hopelessness of it all, knew that there was nothing that she could ever do to get herself out of this, but for some circumstance outside of her control. This person, would being caught up with, with that prince in that kingdom, that's not, she doesn't belong there. See, in order for you to understand how sweet your inheritance of the saints in light is, you have to know where you came from. It's one thing to know what your inheritance is. That's good and beautiful. But until you know where you came from, what your inheritance was, you can't fully appreciate this. So let us work both ends of this to fully appreciate our inheritance that God's given us. You have an inheritance, Christian. It can't be taken from you. It can't be defiled. You can't be robbed of it. Your debt, let's go on the, this side of this first. Your debt to God was great. I'm reading a book right now, a very difficult book to read, written by an old Puritan named Thomas Boston. And he... He's taken about 50 pages to describe the circumstances of our soul before we knew Jesus. And I have to keep putting it down. I get about five, seven pages. It's like, this is overwhelming. It, it, because I don't, I try to make a regular habit of confessing my sin before God. And the more I read Thomas Boston, the more I realize I've barely scraped the surface of my own sin. I, I've barely I've barely looked into the depth of how wicked my ways were before God. Thomas Boston, he writes this. A bit of a longer quote, so bear with me. Speaking about the person before they knew Jesus. You have not only enmity against God in your nature, but have revealed it by actual sins, which are in his eye acts of hostility. You brought forth your lusts into the field of battle against your sovereign Lord, and because you are such a criminal, your condemnation is just. You are guilty of high treason and rebellion against the King of Heaven. The thought and wish of your heart, which he knows as well as the language of your mouth, has been, no, God. You've rejected his government, blown the trumpet, and set up the standard of rebellion against him. You've striven against and quenched his spirit, practically disowned his laws, proclaimed by his messengers. You've conspired with his grand enemy, the devil. He goes on and on and on and on with this. And the reason he does is so that the person who has not yet known Jesus and the person who has determined to follow Jesus can look back on the previous state of their life and say, it was that bad. I didn't realize at the time. I thought I was a good guy. I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do, but I was in rebellion to a holy God. And then the son looked down on you in your position where you were, and he decided to grant an miraculous mercy in your life to graft you into the kingdom of God a place that you did not deserve a place that you had not earned and the way he accomplished it was through a crucifixion the crucifixion of Jesus Christ where literally he gave his life for you poured his blood out had a spear stuck in his side experienced death in all of its fullness crying out my God my God why have you forsaken me what was that moment 
It was the moment of the forsakenness of the son. When the father, in a way, disowned the son, took on what you earned because of your sin. What was your inheritance? Your inheritance is what you had earned. What is your inheritance now? Your inheritance now is what Christ has earned. The, the, the son, all that he has, an eternity of heaven, an eternity, not just some ethereal place in the sky. Church, we studied heaven not that long ago. You know what heaven is. Heaven is not some ethereal place where you're floating on clouds. Heaven will be here in the future. It will be in this geographical space and we'll have real bodies. We'll be glorified bodies with no sin and God will have done away with all pain, all sin. There's no pollution of the mind, soul, heart, spirit, none of it. There's proper worship, proper life and all that it was meant to be and it will be good and it will be never ending and it will be yours and it will be secure because of Christ's death on the cross. That's your inheritance. First Peter chapter three, verse, verse, or chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. What's the third point I'm making here? That we might walk in all circumstances with a spirit of thankfulness. Do, do you have a spirit of thankfulness in you, Christian? And I'm talking about like that good gospel thankfulness. I'm talking about that good, I've looked on the cross and I've seen my debt and I know who I am and I know what the gospel is and I'm thankful to God for it. Is that true of you? And now when we pray for each other, when we lift each other up, are you praying that into other people's lives? Are you looking at them in their circumstances and their hardship and saying, God, I don't know what else to do, but will you give them a spirit of thankfulness? If our church can catch those three ideas of Paul, this place is gonna take off. This place is gonna be a community that we've never seen before. It's gonna be special, and it's moving in that direction. Here's what I wanna do. I would like to pray this prayer over you. And I'm gonna elaborate on it a bit. I'm gonna invite the band to come up, and uh, we're gonna close this service out with two songs of worship. And, uh, and what we like to do in this church is use our last closing songs as a space for you to do business with God to hold your life open before him and to pray. That you might be in this room right now and you might, this might all be new to you. Maybe, maybe you're, you're listening to what I'm saying. You're like, that sounds foreign to me. If it sounds foreign to you, I want you to know today's the day of salvation. This is the day the Lord has made and he's speaking to you through the pages of scripture right now. And his desire for you is to get this. He wants this for you and yes, it's that good. Yes, it's that good. And the way you get that is by believing on Jesus Christ, his death on the cross in your, for you in your place. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand up right now. We're gonna have a moment of prayer. I'm gonna pray over you, and I'm gonna invite you, as the song plays, the songs play, you're free to worship with us, sing with us. I'm gonna have my deacons and elders available on the back of the wall and around the sides of this room. If you need to get up out of your seats and you need to go pray with somebody, just talk with somebody, work through whatever's in your heart, the next 10 minutes are for you to be, make space with God. Let me pray this over you. Oh, Heavenly Father, may each person in this room today be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Oh God, grant them a spirit to know your word, wisdom to apply your word, love to desire your word as the central ethic for all decisions in their life. May they be unashamed to stand upon your word. God, grant them to walk in a manner worthy of you and the gospel. God, may their lifestyles reflect the gospel of Christ's blood shed on the cross for us. May their lives fully please you, even in hardship. 
God, especially in hardship. May their dependence on the Spirit and clinging to the promises of God please you. May their lives be like windows to everyone around them, believer and unbeliever alike, so that when others see them, see their families, see their time, see their values, they would themselves be drawn to deeper relationship with Christ as a result. May this be the spiritual fruit of their life, many coming to saving faith in Jesus because of their walk with you. Oh God, may they be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance so that whatever comes their way, whatever hardship, whether security or danger, whether prosperity or poverty, persecution or comfort, that they would endure with patience and with joy. And may they give thanks to you, Father, in all things as those who have been saved from eternity of wrath and blessed with the unimaginable riches of the inheritance of the saints in light. Church, feel free to use this space as you need. Get up out of your chairs. Find someone to pray with you along the back wall if you need or join us in worship.